electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Jim. I am Brian Sullivan. And tonight, somebody passed the Dramamine. What an utterly wild week for the markets and the banks and your money and why it may be far from over. Plus, California preparing to turn the screws on big oil profits. But could the plan actually cost you more money down the road? And go ask your mom. A first of its kind law in Utah that could take TikTok and more social media out of the hands of kids. Is it just the first of many? That and much more. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west and TGIF. Because what a week it has been. So rest up over the weekend, because there may be plenty more to brace for next week. Okay, first up, the scorecard. Kind of against all odds, the major averages actually managed to make investors money this week. It was capped by a sharp turnaround today, with investors scrambling to make sense of all the various threats to the banks and the financial system. Actually, the markets are now up two weeks in a row. And it's anything but a quiet Friday, again, at least for many banks. And we know there is a lot going on. It can be at times hard to follow, so let's try to make it easy. Really, if you boil it down, there are three major storylines that are playing out at this hour. Number one, the Fed revealing today just how much money all of you took out of banks recently. Here's a hint. It's a lot. Two, we're learning what was discussed at a surprise meeting between Janet Yellen and top regulators about bank safety. And three, and maybe a bigger global story. German giant Deutsche Bank continues to be hit by nervous investors. Shares down again today. They've lost 25% this month. Deutsche Bank is twice the size of Credit Suisse. Like we said, there was a lot happening. So let's try to make sense of it all. And nobody does it better than CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leishman. How was that for a setup, Steve? Ah, great. Right after a week like this. So. Officials sought today to reassure depositors and Wall Street that the banking system is safe as we got, as you said, our first look today at how much money fled small banks in the days before and after the failure of Silicon Valley and signature banks. And it was a lot. Total deposits at all U.S. banks held steady at $16.3 trillion, but deposits at small banks fell by $107 billion to $5.5 trillion. Deposits at large banks, that is the biggest 25 in the country, they actually rose to uh, to $10.8 trillion, up 119 And all this is for the week ending March 15th, so a week delayed. It was the biggest weekly outflow from small banks ever and the biggest on a percentage basis since the great financial crisis. The failure of Silicon Valley, which was the nation's 16th largest, second biggest failure in U.S. history, had ignited fears among uninsured depositors about their money. It's unclear if that exit has continued in the past week or if perhaps assurances from officials that deposits are safe has enough has been enough to stop the flight the financial stability oversight council it includes the treasury secretary and the fed chair they met today they concluded that 
While some banks had come under stress, the banking system overall was, quote, strong and resilient. That's what they said. St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard separately said he saw an 80% probability the financial stress would ease, that the probability of a global financial crisis is low, and that regulators stand ready to act if needed. Well, next week promises an unusually interesting banking hearing on the Hill where the Fed Vice Chair for Bank Supervision, he's going to testify for two days on the bank oversight of Silicon Valley and Signature, where something, Brian, clearly went badly wrong. Understatement of the day, I think. Steve, okay, so you had Janet Yellen and this, what they call FSOC, this sort of panel today. We got the world's blandest sort of one-paragraph comment out of them, you know, sent out to the media. How unusual is that kind of meeting? Or is it, or is it kind of a normal occurrence once in a while? So they're mandated by Congress to meet not less than quarterly. They normally put out a pretty bland statement. I will say that. That's normal. But the fact is that they were meeting amid concern about the banking system. uh, And there were expectations in the market that we might get some more details, some some more interesting uh, commentary from them, maybe a few more assurances. More importantly, Brian, I think there was some hope that perhaps Uh, Secretary Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, would clarify her language on what kind of safety, what kind of guarantees there are for uninsured depositors in this country. Right now, as you know, it's an implicit guarantee, and there are some out there who say it's only an explicit guarantee that's going to fix this thing. Yeah, quite a week for, for specific languages. I guess I can't blame them for putting out that statement. Steve Leisman, thank you very much. All right, for more on this important topic, let's get now to our panel. And that includes Politico's chief economic correspondent, Ben White, New York Times market supporter, Joe Renison, and the former acting chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Tyler Goodspeed. All right, thank you all for joining us. Uh, Got two bearded guys. I'm going to go to the guy on the left. Let's just roll the die. Joker's wild. Ben White, start with you. You see that chart that Steve threw up about bank? $100 billion left small banks last week. That is not a small sum of money, and yet our two main regulators, Powell and Yellen, can't seem to get their story straight. Yeah, it's a big number. I mean, in the grand scheme of all the deposits in the U.S. banking system, it's it's not that large, but it is a lot of money. And I agree that the communication on all of this has not been terrific, uh, seamless, or completely unified across each uh, element of the federal government. I mean, their obvious goal on that Sunday night was to de facto say all deposits in the U.S. banking system are insured, even though it actually takes an act of Congress to do that. Uh, But the example of Signature and SVB were meant to say no bank will uh, be allowed to go under and depositors will be made entirely whole. They've had to go since then and try to keep saying it in ways that are legal and not usurping congressional power, but the message hasn't fully gotten through uh, to the American people. So you still see some money coming out. I think they've rescued all these banks, but they haven't come out and said it uh, 100%, which they should just do, I suppose. Yeah, Tyler, I mean, it's kind of amazing and a little scary that basically two weeks in, I can't go on TV and say whether or not everybody watching or listening's bank deposits over 250 are guaranteed. How, How did we get here? Well, I, I think, and, and my fellow guests just, com- just touched on this briefly, I think part of the issue is that first they bail out SVB in, and, in, and including depositors over 250000 
And then they come out and say, oh, but we're not going to do this every time. So it kind of generated this perception that a deposit at some regional or local bank that's not politically collect, uh, connected is going to be different from a deposit at a systemically important financial institution or a politically connected financial institution. So I think it was that that mismatch between what they did on one hand and then what they messaged the next day that generated this mis this perception that not, not all bank per uh, deposits are created equal. Yeah, and there's all this crazy stuff that, you know, listen, it's Friday night at 7 o'clock on the East Coast. And Joe, I don't want to go into all these technical details, bore everybody to death. But your <laughs> article today used one of my favorite words, bonkers. And I'm not sure I've ever heard the term bonkers used in correlation to the Treasury bond market. But as you noted, there is some bonkers stuff that is happening under the hood. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at the top of the show, you showed how stock prices have risen again today, again this week. They rose last week uh, for the major indices, things like the S&P 500, uh, the NASDAQ, things like that. But, you know, when you look at the bond market, the Treasury market, which is typically stayed, dull, dreary, boring, uninteresting part of the market that's uh, uh, one of the ways in which the US government finances itself. That's where the action's been. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, some of the worst volatility in that market since the 80s. That's going back a long time. Uh, and that's kind of signaling something that is not being signaled in the stock market. You want it, Joe, I know I can see it. You can't see me, but I can see you want to say it. What is it signaling? You wrote it exactly. in your piece. It's signaling uh, concern about the sort of outlook for the economy, the idea that this uh, banking stress maybe isn't over uh, and that things might deteriorate. Equity markets aren't saying that. Credit markets aren't saying that. But the interest rate market certainly is at the moment. Yeah, I wonder, with stocks here, I wonder if we're seeing money from overseas come to the United States because I feel like Europe with their energy crisis and everything else may be in a worse spot. In fact, why don't we stay there? We are continuing to follow a major story that we reported to you last night. We talked about it and then everybody else talked about it today. Deutsche Bank stock, it's kind of gone, <clears throat> sorry, kaput. It closed mm -hmm. down 3%, sorry. It closed down 3% today after dropping as low as 14% earlier in the day. Deutsche Bank has now lost more than a fifth of its value this month, and bets against the bank are rising. Credit default swaps, look at that, which are bets kind of on, you know, against a bad outcome, rose again today. We don't want to scare anybody with this, Ben, but the market is telling the story, not us. Down 25%, swaps are rising. Deutsche Bank is two times bigger than Credit Suisse. Are you concerned, or do you feel the market is maybe overreacting a bit? Uh, ja, Herr Sullivan, uh, nicht sehr gut, uh, sehr gut. kein Deutsch. English, please. Yeah, I'm busy in Deutsch, uh, not too much. But I will say this, um, Deutsche Bank has been a problematic bank, as we all know on this panel, for decades, uh, given some of its uh, issues around, you know, money laundering and handling of questionable assets and their balance sheet and just the size, breadth and complexity of the institution. 
So it doesn't surprise me that after Credit Suisse, which was even more messed up, uh, investors would test or equity investors would test Deutsche Bank. But if you look at the deposit base, the profitability, uh, some of the other factors involved in whether Deutsche is you know sustainable and healthy, it looks okay. You know, I don't think we're about to see the collapse of Deutsche Bank, and there's not a, a USB to buy them in, in Germany that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other panelists may disagree. Uh, but I think it is natural that it would be the next target for equity investors. I don't see the obvious case for why Deutsche Bank is uh, likely to suffer a crisis of confidence and fail. And obviously, the yeah. German government allow it to fail. Tyler, you, you know how it works, right? You, that the, the hyenas, if one of them gets hurt, they often will turn on, turn on each other. You know, and you're seeing investors in banks, clearly a lot of traders work for banks, betting against another bank. How do we calm this down? Deutsche Bank makes Credit Suisse look like a pimple. Well, I, I think the weekend can be good for this because markets can calm down a little bit, take a look at the books and realize probably that Deutsche Bank is not Credit Suisse. I think people often tend to think of banking crises as sort of a rational panic runs on banks. But more often than not, it is informed depositors, informed investors taking a close look at banks and punishing problem banks. But I don't think at the moment, I don't see, see Deutsche Bank as another Credit Suisse. I will say this, however, that this is one of the problems, I think, in the post-2008-2009 world in which we have made the biggest financial institutions in the world look increasingly the same. Yeah. And so there are going to be correlations across bank balance sheets because we have told banks that if you, you take this stress test and you perform poorly, you should revise or reallocate your portfolio in this direction such that banks become more and more similar. Their portfolios look more and more similar. So I yeah. think those that increase in correlations across bank balance sheets since 2008, 2009, and particularly at the biggest banks, is something that's of concern. Because even if we've made individual banks safer, we've made the system as a whole more fragile. Yeah, qu Joe, quickly, is this on your radar? Is this, is this being discussed at the New York Times newsroom? It's absolutely on my radar, um, for sure. Uh, I probably would agree that um, this is more, you know, concern ahead of a weekend, what news might come out, wanting to de-risk, not wanting to be exposed to anything that could potentially come out whilst markets aren't trading. Uh, the European banks are incredibly well capitalized. Uh, there's a very solid base there. But, you know, as we saw with Credit Suisse, uh, the psychology of markets sometimes wins the day and people can still get yeah. scared. People can still run. And there is no bank in the world that is safe under that circumstance. No, and it feels like the hyenas have, have turned on one of their own that they feel is wounded. But a great discussion. Ben, Joe, Tyler, appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys. Have a good weekend. All right, we are just tipping off on this Friday. Coming up, extraordinary measures by NATO to protect critical oil and gas platforms from Russia. The amazing video and report from Tom Costello, you got to see. Plus, California wants to slap oil companies with a windfall profit tax. Sounds good, but could it mean higher prices down the road? A proponent of the rule says no and will join us live. Stick around. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yeah! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Let's keep on our multi-year coverage of Europe's energy crisis because there are some new headlines you got to hear. First up, one of Germany's head regulators is out warning that their power crisis is not over. Despite solid storage levels for natural gas right now, the head of the German agency overseeing this told the FT that there is still a risk of shortages next year, especially if they suffer through a cold winter. This winter was, miraculously, like ours, very mild. Bottom line, there may be a long way to go for Europe. Staying in Europe, another refinery in France is about to be shut down because of strikes that are sweeping the country. An ExxonMobil refinery called Port Jerome is going to halt operations. It adds to other refineries shut down in France because of striking workers. And police there are now basically having to force some refineries to open up and release critical stocks of jet fuel. If not, there could be a shortage. Bottom line on both these stories, number one, Europe's energy crisis, looking good now, far from over, could get worse, not my opinion, head regulator Germany. Number two, if you're planning to fly to France for work or a vacation anytime soon, make sure the airline has enough fuel to get you back home. The strikes there are getting very serious. All right, moving to another aspect of European energy, NATO adding warships and firepower to defend the critical oil and gas fields off Norway. This on concerns over potential Russian sabotage or attack. NBC's Tom Costello joined a NATO patrol in an exclusive look on guard against the Russian Navy. Take a close look, exclusive video from the Norwegian Air Force of what it says is a Russian nuclear submarine's periscope peaking above the water, right over Norway's oil and gas pipelines in the North Sea. Russian warships and fighters passing through sensitive waters between Norway and Scotland. For the Norwegian Navy, high alert. We spent three days, two nights on a priority NATO assignment with the Norwegian ship Sortland, watching over the vulnerable drilling platforms, thousands of miles of pipelines, and the maze of internet and telecom lines that stretch from Europe to America. The concern, Russia could one day attack the internet and energy pipeline. It's two in the morning here on the North Sea. The wind is howling, the seas are rough, and it is very cold. The mission for this boat is to patrol around that platform on behalf of NATO looking for saboteurs or unusual Russian activity. 
It was last September when someone blew up the Nord Stream gas pipeline running from Russia to Germany, 260 feet beneath the surface. So far, no conclusive proof of who did it. But NATO says Russia has since increased its naval activity in Norway's economic waters. And an unusual interest in your gas and oil pipelines and infrastructure. Definitely. They're around this area um, more than once. They're going back and forth. They're following the pipeline. So they have a suspicious uh, activity. This month, NATO has been holding show of force exercises in the far north as Norway defends its 123-mile land border with Russia. Right across that border, Russia's biggest naval base. This is Murmansk here. This is Murmansk, and it is perhaps the world's largest concentration of, of nuclear weapons. Vice Admiral Rune Anderson commands the Norwegian Navy. NATO's network of ocean floor sensors, he says, has recently detected much more unpredictable Russian sub activity. And also, uh, they have had some maneuvers that uh, I could describe as uh, more aggressive. NATO helicopters drop sonar buoys, listening for Russian subs. Norway's foreign minister says the world now recognizes how critical its oil and gas fields are to the global economy that we really need to protect uh, the whole infrastructure system and also uh, the installations at sea. Uh, so we are prepared for everything. NATO warship Foxtrot 333, this is Whiskey 342, over. We saw the new urgency as our ship was pulled into a secret NATO operation. So off of our port side, we have just now had visitors. Three NATO warships have shown up. One, two, three helicopters in the air right next to that very important Norwegian gas platform. This is about sending a message to Russia. NATO is on guard, on patrol, and takes this very seriously. High atop the biggest platform out here, the head of NATO announced the alliance will protect North Sea oil and gas. President Putin failed in his attempt uh, to uh, use energy as uh, a weapon. With war raging in Ukraine, the stakes in this forbidding expansive ocean are very high. Wow, amazing piece. With us now is NBC's Tom Costello. Tom, uh, uh, incredible reporting, uh, a little scary. You were on the boat for three days, two nights. What was the mood? It seems like it must be tense. You know, these are Norwegians. I mean, and, and it's interesting when you talk to them. Yeah, they're worried. They're very worried because of all the Russian activity that they see every single day through their waters. And these are their waters. Uh, you know, you talk to these, the, the young people, the 23-year-old the first officer you met there, uh, and quite literally, uh, he grew up there, right up the fjord. He went out fishing every day, and his, his family uh, fishes and lives right there. So to them, it's very personal. It's not, personal. It's not just international economics. It's their backyard, it's their family's livelihoods, it's their country, uh, and they are very, very proud of, of the role they play and very grateful that NATO is there to back them up. And we, and we saw that video, a Russian submarine directly above another pipeline. Yes, and in fact, that was just captured by the, uh, by the Air Force, by the Norwegian Air Force, but they say this happens all the time. It has been increasing, the pace of that's been increasing ever since Nord Stream. And as you know, there's been no definitive decision who was behind Nord Stream. Was it the Americans? They deny it. Was it the Ukrainians or a black op? They deny it. The Russians deny it. The Brits deny it. Uh, so the Swedes are involved in an investigation right now to determine who's responsible. And in the meantime, the Russians apparently have picked up the pace of their patrols through mm. that area. 
Amazing reporting, amazing video, and uh, a hell of a story. Tom Costello, we appreciate you bringing it to us. Thank you. You bet. All right. Still ahead, speaking of energy, California wants to slap a windfall profit tax on big oil, but will it really work to bring down what you pay at the pump? A proponent of the bill joins us next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Let's stay on a story that we first talked about last night. California is likely to pass a law that would create a new state agency designed to go after big oil profits if the state determines those profits are too high. The idea is to try to cut down on outsized price spikes in gasoline, like what we saw two years ago and then or last year, and punish big oil for being too profitable. Remember, recently big oil companies actually did lose billions of dollars in 2020, but then they printed money last year. Now, California is an outlier, really, when it comes to oil and gas. There's almost no way to get gasoline into the state except refine it there or bring it in by ship. They use their own blend of gas. They have the second highest gas tax in America, second only to Pennsylvania. And California also has twice as many drivers per gas station as the American average, giving station owners more pricing power. California also plans to ban the sale of all gas-powered cars and trucks within 12 years, despite the fact that right now only about one in five cars sold there is all electric. But that means pretty much no one wants to or maybe even can build a new gas station. Listen to this. The youngest big refinery in California, the the newest, was built in 1968, three years before I was born. And there are seven refineries running now that began their operations before 1930, including one that was first built in 1896. Obviously, it's been retrofitted since then. But what is this? There will be blood? It's unbelievable. So is this the right plan, right answer, or... Or not. Let's talk about it, maybe debate it. Jamie Court is with Consumer Watchdog. He has been a passionate advocate for this topic. He has testified uh, before the California government. They've got all kinds of data points on this. And I looked through them, Jamie, and I appreciate you joining us on CBC. And you, you make a pretty good case about, listen, it wasn't just gasoline that went up. It was big oil, printed a lot of money. So how would you define too much profit? I'm trying to understand how this agency would work. Well, the the bill would give the California Energy Commission the ability to set a level, a penalty level at which uh, the uh, oil refiners would pay a penalty for making too much off their per gallon profits, the gross refining margin. These are this is a a standard industry measure. And we know that their profits doubled per gallon last year. uh, And we also saw their profits, not coincidentally, uh, as refineries overall quadruple last year over the previous year. But the point being that in the last 20 years, they had a 32 cent per gallon 
profit margin. And last year it was overall 66 cents, but there were times in the year where they were making a dollar, a dollar 25 in a month off processing gasoline. And that's ridiculous when Californians have to pay six dollars at the at the at the pump and our gas prices were two dollars and sixty cents more than the average US price. So it's what we're trying to do is stop those price spikes because every time there's one of those price spikes, it corresponds to the profit spike. We take away the profit spike, we stop the price spike. So I spoke with two oil and gas companies today. I do cover a lot of energy and and they said listen A lot of this gasoline is sold on the open market, that if one gas company has a shortage and some other gas company needs it, they're going to bid the price up. Yes, the one gas company is going to make it a lot of money on that, but it's more because of the lack of supply, that you can't, California, gasoline demand has not gone down that much, even as EV sales spike. They can't build a new refinery, as I just laid out, and that there's always this super tight supply-demand push-pull Jamie, that when something happens, supply chain shocks, prices will spike. Well, 98% of the gasoline is made by uh, five refiners. This is a consolidated market. It's an oligopoly. And the reason prices spike isn't because production costs go up. It's because the price of the commodity spikes. And unfortunately, our commodities market is rigged. It's the spot market where refiners trade with each other and with traders, and and the price that retailers pay is set based on this spot market price. And there is no record of that of, of who's trading with whom or what sets that spot market price. It's just a number printed in an oil publication, Opus publication, every day. Well, what we're doing with this law is opening the books. We're requiring them to disclose who traded to when and how much to see if some of these trades didn't artificially drive up the price. Our attorney general has a case against companies, two traders, for driving up the price artificially and driving up the price at the gas station artificially. So we are going to get lots of transparency to prevent the spot market from being manipulated. We're also going to get transparency so that refiners have to report when they're going down for maintenance and giving the state the power to prevent all the refiners from going down for maintenance at once. And once we do that, we'll get a handle on why we're paying so much more for our gas. But isn't it a 70 cent difference between U.S. and California prices? If you just add taxes and environmental quality, we're traditionally at a dollar twenty five this year up at two sixty. But one of the I mean, I tried to lay it out. And and by the way, my family owned one gas station in in Los Angeles area back in the the late 70s and early 80s. You know, uh, you guys use your own blend of gas. You can't get any natural gas or gasoline or oil into the state except by ship because you can't build a pipeline. And you've got people driving further because they can't afford to live. You know, they may they may work in, you know, the Bay Area, but live in Stockton because they can't afford a house. So driving miles may go up. I hear what you're saying, but can we all just agree? Also, California has done a lot of this to itself. And I I was born and raised there. I love the state. But they botched it. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to pay 70 cents more for our environmental air quality and for our added taxes to fix our roads. I'm not willing to pay $2.60 more. So what this does is take away these extreme price spikes, which, by the way, hit those people who have to drive to work longer distance harder. When it's $6 per gallon, the average minimum wage worker is spending 13% of their out-of-pocket income. This is done for them. Yeah. We are trying to take away the price spikes and get a handle on the market. We acknowledge our environmental uh, regulations have driven up uh, the costs, but not to the extreme degree we were paying last year. Jamie Court, passionate advocate for the topic, and we welcome you back anytime, Jamie, to talk more about it. Looks like this will go through. Thank you. Have a good Friday. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. All right. So let's lighten it up a bit. 
and head to Quicker Than the Ticker. All the news that matters to your money and some stories about a zebra and an update on a loose cow. So let's put 90 seconds on the clock and go. Starting off with a sully side up for you. Have you ever had a hard time canceling a membership or free trial? Of course you have, but a new FTC rule could soon make it easier to do it. It's called click to cancel. Here's FTC Chair Lena Khan on NPR yesterday. Companies are not able to manipulate consumers into paying for subscriptions that they don't want. Changes underway at Twitter. The company is getting rid of legacy verified blue checks for accounts that were verified before Elon Musk took over, like mine. Users will have to pay if they want to keep that verified status. A zebra escaped the children's zoo in South Korea. It was seen running around town for a few hours before being captured, unharmed, and then returned to its home at the zoo. If you're in need of a passport or passport renewal before summer, do it now. The State Department says it is getting crushed by an onslaught of applications could cause delays. Could Blockbuster Video make a comeback? Their website says they're, quote, working on rewinding your movie. It's unclear what that means, but fans are excited. By the way, the lone blockbuster video still exists in Ben, Oregon. We got a nice update for you on that Brooklyn cow story from the other day. Stewie, which is the calf there who escaped the slaughterhouse in Brooklyn, was running around New York. He now found a new home at a New Jersey animal sanctuary. Spring has sprung earlier than ever in most of America. That, according to Scientific American, 12 states had the warmest January. Oh, time's up. Old Stewie is alive and well in a pasture. Good luck, Stewie. Still ahead, do you want your kids off social media? Move to Utah. State just took a huge step to try to protect kids. Plus, even your Netflix subscription may no longer be safe from new taxes. Where's 11 when we need her? All right, welcome back to Last Call. Utah is taking a big step in trying to keep kids safe or off social media. Republican Governor Spencer Cox signed legislation into law yesterday that has the potential to drastically change access to social media for kids. It will require age verification for all residents trying to open an account, require minors to get parental consent in order to open that account, and give parental access to social media accounts of minors and limited hours of access for kids. Those are just some of the general requirements listed in the law, which will go into effect next March. Utah is the first state to do anything like this. Will more follow? Joining us now to talk about it is Utah State Senator Michael McKell, who is the chief sponsor of the law. Uh, Senator McKell, thank you for joining us. Um, so I like to use the birthday July 4th, 1976. Whenever I sign, it's not my birthday, but whenever I sign up for something, that's what I use just because I don't like them to know, right? How do we know that kids, you know, a 12-year-old are going to be like, yeah, I was born in 1947? You know, I, I love that question, and I'm probably a little bit like you. I shouldn't admit it um, with you with you tonight. But what, what our bill says is we, we're going to have a verification process. It's going to run through our Department of Consumer Protection, and we're going to be really, really careful. that The tech companies tell me they can verify age. They they say they can do it with 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 a fair amount of exactness. And that's what we, we want to see. We want to verify who's online and, and we're going to provide some really good controls and some opportunities for parents to get involved in the social media use of their kids. Like, I mean, how do we, how do the parents get, you know, how do we prevent just some kid lying about their age to get access to it? What, what, what layer of security are you adding 
or making the apps ad? Right. And I think it's a great question. And let me let me just say that that's going to be worked out in our rulemaking process. We've passed the bill right now. Our Division of Consumer Protection is going to flush out that that process, working with tech tech companies. Um, it, it could be a form of government ID, but our, our bill is really clear that it that it, that it can't be limited to only forms of government ID. And and with any kind of law, there's always there's always going to be some leakage. We're not going to get everybody. We, we realize that. But we are trying to make a difference with the majority of folks that are online, especially as we try to protect our kids. And I'm sure you can see the headlines. You've probably heard them already, Senator, which is like Utah wants, you know, takes control off the hands of parents. Not right. true. If under your proposal, under this this law, parents can give open free reign to their kids. Can they not? This is their choice. Yeah. Yeah, and so the headlines. If, you, if there's a headline like that, it is it is misleading. The bill does exactly the opposite. There are some default provisions in, in the bill. I think you mentioned some of those default provisions, but those provisions can be overridden by parents more than anything else. As I've gone out in the public and I've met with parents, I, I'm a parent myself. I have four four kids. I have two teenagers still. Um, parents want help. And what we're trying to do with this legislation is provide a framework for help. But the bill does more than that. I, I, one thing I'd say is we, we ban the collection of data on our kids. I think we all agree that that shouldn't happen. And as you recall, the State of the Union address, President Biden, he, he went in hard and he said, we need to stop experimenting on our kids. And he said two things. He said, we need to make sure that we are banning the, the use of, of data with our children, as well as direct you know, a marketing and advertisement directly to kids. And so we're, we're, we actually have those provisions in our in our bill. And I think that's going to be really helpful. It's not amazing. I mean, you look at the stats about mental health, depression. Now, obviously, it's hard to tie things directly. But when right. you look at any of the data out there, there does appear to be a very strong correlation between kids, mental health, bullying, suicides right. and social media. Kids, kids can be cruel. Let's, let's face it. Um, and yet it's not, it's like this topic that almost nobody until recently wants to talk yeah. about. Well, and, and let me just say this, what, what I appreciate most about the work that I did, um, I, I worked with some really good partners in the legislature. Representative Tusher was one who, who carried a bill as well. It was very important, but this is a big bipartisan issue and, and we're all concerned. If, if we watched the CDC report that came out earlier this year, what we found is, 30% of our girls uh, have, have seriously considered suicide. And the impact mm. of, that we're seeing on mental health, especially with our girls, I, I have two daughters. Uh, it, it, is, it is alarming, to say the least. I, I recently, you know, I followed the TikTok hearing. I think most 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 Americans did. Um, one U.S. senator called, called it digital fentanyl. And, and I think that's appropriate. I, I think we've got a very addictive product out there that's doing a lot of damage. And look, here in Utah, we're, we're trying to we're trying to make a difference. We, we hope we have a model that other states will look look at and consider. Um, I, I, I'm really optimistic. I think the mm -hmm. federal federal delegations, both Republicans and Democrats, they're they're taking a strong stance. And I, I hope to see some really good improvement across the nation. Senator Michael McKell of Utah, state senator. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So. Listen to this. And if you're watching us from New York, maybe sit down, maybe top off your drink, maybe do both. Because you could soon be helping to fund the New York City subway with a new tax on streaming video. Some New York lawmakers have come up with an idea to help fill budget gaps on the subway by slapping a new tax on Netflix, Peacock and other streaming services. Also like an Uber, too. 
Why is it always, by the way, about more taxes? Anyway, you may want to start saving up now because this is not just happening in New York either. Joining us now is the Wall Street Journal reporter who's putting a spotlight on this story, and that is Jimmy Vielkind. Uh, Jimmy, uh, it's not just streaming services, right? It could be ride-sharing like an Uber as well. I mean, to, to fund the subway, what exactly is going on here? Well, Brian, New York City's subways, like like public transit systems across the U.S., have really been grappling with the revenue shortfall because ridership has simply not rebounded to its pre-pandemic levels, even though we're getting on three years past the initial shutdowns. In New York, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which runs the subways, buses, commuter railroads, bridges and tunnels in and out of New York City, adopted a budget for this year that assumed $600 million in some kind of government bailout from the state and the city, perhaps the feds. Uh, And so what we're happening and what we're seeing right now in the state capitol in Albany is a debate among lawmakers about exactly how to fill that gap. Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor, proposed raising payroll taxes. This means that businesses in downstate areas would pay a few extra cents for every $1,000 of payroll for each employee. Democrats who dominate both the state assembly and the Senate rejected that, and they said instead they want to use some corporate taxes. And they also put a slew of these smaller taxes on the table, including the streaming products tax. So according to a proposal by Democrats in the state assembly, if you applied the state's 4% sales tax to Netflix, Peacock, uh, you would raise about $100 million a year. That would go to public transit systems across the state, including the MTA, which, of course, would take up the lion's share of the money. You know, and listen, what they'll say is it's just a couple of cents. You know, you can do your fair share to help the subway in the subway. By the way, I I take it whenever I'm in the city. I I love it. it. It is struggling. COVID violence. Who can blame it? Now, I don't know if those would be covered, so I might be on the hook here, uh, Jimmy. New York State got 12.7 or 13 billion dollars from on COVID relief money. Billion with a B. I don't know if that was barred from being used on the subway. But, you know, when you look at schools with all the billions they got, most of it's not spent. When you look at this, it's like, where's where did the money go? Well, so the COVID relief funds that went to transit systems across the country, including the MTA, which as the largest public transit system in the country, I believe, got the largest amount of money, has basically been used to paper over those deficits that we started seeing in the spring of 2020. Now the money's run out and transit systems everywhere are looking to governments to fill those gaps as they try to encourage riders to come back and to some extent streamline and make their operations more efficient. So transit systems in California have asked that state for some sort of a bailout. Uh, The system Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, BART, was hit particularly hard. They, before the pandemic, received about two-thirds of their operating revenue, basically 66 cents on every dollar from rider fares. When you saw ridership plummet, they were hit particularly hard. In that way, they're in a stronger position than some other systems, which, like in Dallas, rely on rider fares for only about 10% of their operating budget. New York was at about 50%. And again, because of its size, because of its scale, it's been particularly hurt. And now they're having this debate about all kinds of different ways that they can get more money into the MTA's coffers. It it was it was hurt pre-COVID and now it's more hurt. You just wonder, like the school might, where where did it go? Most of it's not spent. Jimmy, thank you. Coming up, 
Artificial intelligence tool ChatGPT taking the world by storm, but you may not know Elon Musk's role in its founding, but you will after this. All right, welcome back. to. It's the last call of last call, almost. All right, new reporting out of Semaphore, shedding light on the origins of OpenAI, the company everybody's talking about, and some guy named Elon Musk's early involvement in that company. Joining us now is the man behind that piece, Semaphore, tech editor Reed Albergati. Uh, Reed, my first thought was, is there any company that Elon Musk is not involved in? And then I thought, well, it's getting pretty ugly. Is it not? Yeah, I don't think there is, actually. He's involved in every company. It's no, the, OpenAI is the absolute hottest consumer technology company right now, which is really a huge surprise. And, and it's even more surprising that they've partnered with Microsoft to come out with this chat GPT and Dolly um, that have just really taken the world by storm. Elon Musk actually helped found this company back in 2015, and then he left. And, you know, he it was a charity at the time. It was a nonprofit um, and now they've they've transitioned to becoming a for-profit. And since ChatGPT came out in November, Musk has been all over Twitter just, just you know, raging against this company because he's saying, hey, I put $100 million into this company and they were a nonprofit. Now they're a for-profit and they're controlled by Microsoft. And, you know, he's he's really ticked off. But the the new reporting in this article shows that, you know, he he actually he did put in a hundred million dollars, but he promised a billion. And then he, he bailed. And the reason he bailed is he thought Google was just, was just taking over and OpenAI wasn't able to keep up. Uh, so basically he kind of left, left them for dead. And because of that, because they didn't have enough money, they actually had to turn to the private, you know, venture capital slash, uh, you know, strategic partnership world to bring in new money. Only, because, only Elon yeah, Musk. Ahead. Only Elon Musk could be like, yo, sorry, you're not 900 million, I promise. Sorry, bro. Like, like, like it's chunk. <laughs> it's like if I, if I owed you 90 bucks, Reed. Exactly. So how does this play out? I mean, is anybody going to get rich here? Or is it? No. Well, you know, that's a, it's a good question because actually another, another point in this article that I found just astonishing is that Sam Altman, who is now CEO of OpenAI, actually didn't take any equity in this company. Um, so, you know, I don't know, there could be other ways that he may, you know, be able to profit off of this, mm -hmm. but I mean, that's just another, and, and he's, and he's wealthy because he's, he's made a lot of great investments in the tech world. He ran Y Combinator, which yep. is an important accelerator. Um, but it's just, when have you ever heard about billionaires founding a company and fighting over it? And they're basically doing it for free. I mean, it's, that's it's, kind a, of, it's that's a remarkable kind of a, story. It is. And we urge everybody to go read out, tweet it out, read Abergati, some of four great stuff. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, you're welcome. All right, let's go back in time. 34 years. It's a low note. It's when America had one of its worst environmental disasters ever. On March 24th, 1989, it's hard to believe it was that long ago, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker crashed into a reef in Prince William Sound in southern Alaska. Experts say an estimated 11 million gallons of oil spilled into the water. That's roughly what 17 Olympic-sized swimming pools can hold. 17 million, I would assume. Wind and current spread across the oil, more than 1,300 miles of coastline, killing tens of thousands of birds, fish, and other wildlife, marine mammals. And it cost ExxonMobil $3.8 billion. Kind of a low point to end on a Friday night. Anyway, we will see you next week. Have a great Friday, whatever you're doing. Thanks for joining us. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 